Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com. You can't just give anyone who's being threatened security. You have to go to the head of the snake and you have to cut off the head of the snake because otherwise it'll, it'll never stop. And then you should hope that it's only one snake because you never know, of course, whether there are more. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A journalist shot dead on the street. A criminal lawyer assassinated on the doorstep of his Amsterdam home. And the brother of a state witness gunned down as a reminder of the punishment carried for breaking the underworld's secret code of omerta. Now, narco-terrorism in the Netherlands has reached even greater heights, with its prime minister under 24-hour protection and the suspect behind these shocking murders found to have been planning a dramatic escape from the country's highest security prison. So what's next for a nation under siege? And is criminal Ridwan Taji, Europe's very own Pablo Escobar? This week, I'm talking to Saskia Bellman of The Telegraph about the street dealer turned mob boss behind a remarkable series of events that have shook the very foundations of Dutch society. She tells me about the hitmen hired to kill famous journalist Peter Orr de Vries, about the secret jailhouse meetings between Taji and a lawyer now under investigation, and about a country questioning its ability to fight the monster of organised crime. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Yes, I was surprised that they got them to court so quickly. Yeah, I, I think it has to do a lot with uh, the evidence. There's so much evidence against these t- uh, two guys. Uh, they were arrested within the hour after the attack, uh, still sitting in the car uh, they used to uh, to leave Amsterdam. Um, the clothing, the guy that shot Peter uh, de Vries uh, was still in the car. There was a, a bottle of petrol in the car they obviously wanted to use to set the, the car on fire, but they hadn't uh, gotten around that yet. So, no, they were arrested really soon. Uh, The weapons were still in the car as well, both of them. Um, They had two weapons. One of them they used uh, to shoot Peter de Vries. Um, The other one was lying, was still lying in the car. There was DNA found on the weapons of both uh, the suspects. So, yeah, there's an overload of evidence. Okay, and as usual in the Netherlands, we have the first names and the initials of the two suspects. So it's Delano G, 22-year-old from Rotterdam, and Camille E, 35-year-old Polish national. Um, Which one of them has stated that he knew nothing of what was happening and just was caught up in this mess? Yeah, that was the Polish guy. Uh, The other one, who is the suspected shooter, uh, didn't want to say anything. The only thing he said was that he wasn't prepared to answer any questions, so he didn't. He was just sitting there... Um, looked rather indifferent. Uh, but the other one, the Polish guy, he talked a lot and he said, well, I was invited by someone, he didn't say who, 
uh, to go to Rotterdam, pick up someone I didn't know and bring him to Amsterdam because he wanted to meet someone there. I had no idea what it was for, uh, but I did it. Uh, I just picked up the guy. There were two other guys that got into the car as well. They drove to Amsterdam. Uh, then the Polish guy said, we left the car, uh, walked around a bit, and then I went back to the car because it was parked wrongly and I was afraid I was going to have a ticket. Um, but what he didn't say was that the guy that shot Peter later uh, went with him back to the car, um, changed his clothing, put on a cap on his head uh, and went away again. Uh, then this guy sat on uh, a flight of stairs in the street where the parking garage is, where Peter de Vries used to park his car, waited for him to come out uh, of, the st of the studio where he had been recording uh, RTL Boulevard, the program is called, um, and then he shot him. Uh, he shot him at least four times. Peter was hit in the head and in his hip, and he died uh, about nine days later. Uh, and the guy that shot him just walked back to the car, got in again, uh, and they drove away. And the Polish guy said he had no idea what had happened, but he must have seen the weapons. They were lying in the back of, uh, of the car. His DNA was all over the weapons. So uh, he claims that he only knew uh, what he was supposed to have done uh, when the police told him in the evening. Um mm -hmm. But what he didn't tell is what he did in Amsterdam a week before the shooting. He was in Amsterdam a week before Peter uh, was shot, um, walked around the studio um, at the back entrance, walked to the parking garage, and he was looking uh, at the parking garage. He looked at Peter de Vries going into the parking garage, and the staff of the garage found that very um, peculiar. So they alarmed uh, the guard of uh, the program and said, hey, um, we didn't get a nice feeling about this. Something's wrong and we wanted to warn you. So the guard warned Peter. He also warned the police. And that was it. A week later, he was shot anyway. Um, Peter uh, was offered by this guard um, that this guard would accompany him to the garage, but uh, he declined. He said, I don't want to do that because, you know, it's just... Uh, that it stands out more. Mm. And people will notice that I'm being accompanied by someone in a uniform. I don't want that. And in the Netherlands, there have been tributes to the investigative journalist Pieter R. de Vries after he died in hospital Thursday. Flowers have been left at the spot where the 64-year-old was shot last week. The Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, said the veteran journalist was afraid of nothing and no one. So Pieter R. de Vries, was no he was notoriously didn't want security, didn't want it around him. He felt he couldn't do his job. Um, if he had that, and I know there was some controversy over whether or not the police in the Netherlands could have insisted on doing something, uh, you know, a little bit discreetly maybe around him. But is this, I'm getting a sense that despite what had happened beforehand, there was the, the murder of a criminal lawyer, Dirk Wurstrom, and the brother of the Crown witness, Nabil B, his brother, who was to give evidence against Rido and Taji and others in the Marengo trial. Despite those two murders, it seems to me as if in Amsterdam there was still the sense of there's no way this could happen to the likes of Peter Ordovice. There was no way he could be targeted in such a way. And I know we all have that sense of there's no way somebody will go for journalists and there was no way they'd do that and all the trouble that it would cause. But it seems to me that there was a lot of institutions involved in that sense of 
not believing it could happen. Yeah, that's true. I think uh, there was a lot of um, people that were naive, I think. Uh, maybe Peter thought he was invulnerable, uh, that they wouldn't wouldn't dare to uh, to hit on him. Um, but at the same time, I think after the lawyer of the Crown Witness was killed, um, most people must have realized that these guys wouldn't stop at anything. They would, you know, shoot anyone who would threaten their uh, their drug trade, uh, who would threaten their position. So I don't know if it's just naive. Uh, it's also uh, Peter, he, he didn't want to have the kind of security personnel around him that some of my colleagues have who are being threatened as well. He says, I can't do my work. Um, when I have to work like that, I'm, I have to live like that. There were um, meetings about another way of uh, getting him um, some some security, but that wasn't, um, it, it had not finished yet, those discussions. So that was a bit difficult, but um, we also wondered about um, whether it would have, must have been possible to guard him in another way, a, a, a little you know, mm. guys that would would accompany him uh, on a distance or whatever. But the police said, if we do that, um, and he is not prepared to let us know where he's going, we would have to put a policeman in front of his door for 24 hours a day because he wouldn't let us know where he's going. Uh, he didn't want that. And you can't force uh, security on anyone if this person doesn't want it. For more on this, let's now cross over to DW correspondent Barbara Wesel in Brussels, who's following this story for us. Barbara, uh, what more can you tell us? His family put out a notice uh, saying that uh, Peter de Vries had lost a battle that in the end he couldn't win. We knew from the beginning, about nine days ago, when he was gunned down, that his injuries were quite catastrophic. One of the shots had struck his head. So there was always doubt whether he could really make it in the end. And the family now say uh, he was surrounded by his loved ones and he fought to the end. But I wonder as well, Saskia, though, are we, as Europeans, have we not been ready for the likes of Rido and Taji? Because at the centre of a lot of these things that have happened in the Netherlands of late, um, is Taji. While the trial of the two for the murder of Peter or de Vries, it has been stated that it's only for their involvement and it's not anything to do with who directed the murder. Taji is nonetheless there in the background as a suspect and he's sitting in a high security prison in the Netherlands. He, of course, is a former business partner of Daniel Kinahan, uh, the head of our own Irish mob. He's there and... You know, if we're to believe that he has, you know, anything to do with what has gone on on the outside, we also have to take into consideration that in the aftermath of this murder, this guy is, if the suspicions of the, the Netherlands police are correct, also trying now to break out of prison. Well... There are, um, we think he tried. Um, I don't know whether you heard, but a couple of weeks ago, um, we found out that uh, he was visited by a lawyer that was his nephew, uh, Youssef Tashi. Um, the the authorities, authorities knew about that. They stopped Youssef Tashi 
for a while from visiting his nephew in this ex this this extra um, security prison. Um, but after a while, they realized they didn't have any means to refuse him entrance. He is a lawyer and he's entitled to, you know, to visit his family member. And because he's a lawyer, the discussions they had together uh, couldn't be recorded, as all discussions in this high security prison are, but not the ones that um, inmates have with their lawyers. And because this guy was a lawyer, uh, they couldn't record anything they said. Meanwhile, they found out that they scribbled notes to each other while they were chatting about innocent, innocent subjects. They just scribbled all kinds of things on notes and showed the paper to each other. Um, well, after a while, um, when that was found out, this Yusuf Taji was arrested. But uh, there was this police officer who said, we can't rule out the possibility that uh, that was when the attack on Peter de Vries was um, organized. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it, it could have happened at that moment. Um, and Rida Montaji is not, um, uh, he's, he's still on trial in this big Marengo trial. Uh, that, that's about a lot of uh, killings in the underworld. Um, but there is also an investigation going on um, to who has ordered the attack on Peter de Vries. Um, but I think that the... Um, the Justice Department thinks that if we we succeed in convicting, giving him a life sentence in this Marengo trial, it doesn't really matter um, who was behind the attack on the lawyer. It doesn't really matter who was behind the attack on Peter de Vries, mm. as long as he's behind bars for the rest of his life. Uh, but they are still investigating his uh, his role. And Mark Rutte, the, the Dutch caretaker at the moment, Prime Minister, is also under 24-hour security because there was a suggestion that he too is under security threat and there could have been a plot to kidnap him. Yeah, also um, probably by the organised crime. So uh, we haven't heard much about it, but he is being uh, watched now. He's uh, he ha The security has been uh, tremendous by now, which he hates because, you, you know, our prime minister always uh, goes everywhere on bike. Uh, he can't do that anymore. It's too dangerous. Scenes like this could be a thing of the past. The Dutch prime minister likes to cultivate an approachable image. But recently, Mark Rutte has had to up his security after police observed threats from drug criminals. It's not, not quite sure what the, the threats were, whether they were going to kidnap him or kill him. But anyway, um, they had to do mm. something. And it's, you know, news after news that breaks and everything shocks us, uh, obviously. And uh, the realization becomes bigger and bigger that we really need to do a lot more to fight these gangs. Uh, I mean, you, you can't just give anyone who's being threatened security. You have to go to the head of the snake and you have to cut off the head of the snake because otherwise it will, it'll never stop. And then you should hope that it's only one snake because you never know, of course, whether there are more. Uh, I wondered about that. And, you know, I wondered about the policing plan up to the point that, you know, the head of a snake is brought in in the Netherlands. So, you know, there is... A, this sort of policing idea that if you're bringing in somebody, you know, at the head of a mafia organization, that you all, you have to actually cut off their oxygen supply before you do that. 
So for us in Ireland, we have currently got 60 members of the Kinahan Organised Crime Gang behind bars and they have essentially been been cut off, deoxygenated. They don't have a presence as such anymore here in this country. And that was the part, the first part of a five to seven year plan. Whereas it seems to me that Taji has a lot of people on the outside who are still very much free and very much going about their criminal business. And maybe, you know, maybe that, that the policing plan allowed them sort of be free while he was he was jailed, which means, you know, you have a big problem. Yeah, and I think we don't have a, a five or seven year plan. We don't have a plan at all. Um, I can hear uh, policemen um, say that we need to have a plan. We need to be serious about it. We need to have enough money to do something about it. But somehow it has also to do with the political situation at the moment, of course, the government is unable to... Um, to decide uh, to to uh, spend a lot of money on doing this because, you know, we still haven't got an official government. We're still waiting for one. So that stops just about everything. But still, even if there would be uh, a proper government, I don't think they take it uh, seriously enough. Uh, still, it's not being taken seriously enough. And that's really, really worrying Mm. Uh, so many people that warn that we haven't seen the end of this yet and there's going to be a lot more uh, of, of this uh, murders, um, kidnappings, uh, violence. Uh, and somehow it, it doesn't seem to land in The Hague. And Taji, of course, the 16 sort of suspected members of his gang on trial with him, all of whom are in custody. So it's not as if he has just been reeled in and everybody else has been let uh, do their thing. But perhaps the structure of his gang hasn't been properly considered before he was brought in or, you know, brought in from from Dubai, which was in 2019. Um, You know, or maybe, look, this is just armchair policing, it's easier to, to criticise really than to go out and do it. Um, but it, it's an extraordinary times definitely for, for the Netherlands and really I think as well a lesson to us all of, you know, possibly what's coming because this is definitely bigger than I think we've ever experienced across Europe, this personality at the centre of this and the absolute belief that he and others like him are above the law and can do what they want. There's also this international cooperation that's really threatening. I mean, you know all about it with the Kinahan clan, but we we only just started to find out uh, about those international connections with South America, with Ireland, with all kinds of countries where clans are working together um, in the drug trade. And obviously drugs has always been, you know, something... Uh, we smiled about in the Netherlands, you know, when people used hashis or a little bit of cocaine. We never took it really seriously. Um, people hardly were ever prosecuted because of using it, maybe for trading it, but not for using it. And now the realization starts that obviously it begins with people that use drugs, because if there are no people using drugs, there's no mm-hmm. trade in drugs. And you take away their their way to earn money, 
but somehow it, that is so big and so it has grown so out of hand that it seems that no one knows exactly what to do about it. And do you get the sense, Saskia, I often think to myself, I try and compare it, like what has happened in Europe and the joining, the merging of these gangs and these very strong personalities that have all come together. Is it like when you get a very special football team? Is it something that only happens once every couple of decades? Or do you think this is the new norm, that this is what we're facing into in the future? I would really be afraid if this is the new norm, uh, because that would mean that it would go on and you you wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Uh, But I'm afraid it's not just this period. I think it's bigger. And you can see that uh, at the bottom of the organization, new um, youngsters come in. uh, They begin with relatively small jobs. Uh, 12 or 13 years year olds are being uh, recruited to do the spotter's work, to, to look at where victims go, what their routine is, um, at what time they, they leave to their work, when they leave for home. They give this information to the ones that are uh, eventually going to uh, to take action. But those youngsters, you already have to try to prevent them from becoming active in those organizations. I mean, if if they're already doing it, it's almost too late um, to get them out and to to, to get them to go back to school or to find a normal job or whatever. And somehow I don't see that happening yet. I Mm. don't see the realization in our country that you really have to do more to, to tackle this problem. And of course, that's not for police. That's for social workers and healthcare workers and teachers and all the rest. Um, Delano G and Camille E, when is that trial likely? When are we going to hear further evidence about what happened that awful day? Uh, The next hearing is on the 6th of December. That's still going to be a preliminary uh, hearing. uh, But in May or June next year, we are going to have the actual court case uh, and then their standing trial and we expect them to get really heavy um, sentences if, if the, the, uh, the evidence is enough. Uh, because last week, the two guys that shot the lawyer of the Crown Witness, uh, they were convicted to 30 years. Um, the authorities don't know who actually shot, uh, but they say it doesn't really matter because they prepared the murder together. Their, um, their part was equal, and I think um, that it's the same is going to happen in the case of Peter de Vries. That the the uh, attorney general will say, well, their their you know their roles were equal, even if on, only one fired the shots and the other one was behind the wheel of uh, of the car. Uh, it doesn't really matter; they did it together. And did they serve 30 years in your country when they get it? Or like here, do they get remission and get out halfway through? Well, we, we had a change of the law recently. And that means that usually it, it was uh, habitual that they would come out after two thirds of the sentence. So if you're convicted to 30 years, you come out 20 years. But now it has changed. Uh, they have to serve a sentence of 28 years, which is considerably longer than, uh, than it used to be. Mm, that is a good long sentence. I was being a bit sarcastic about the get out halfway through. I think it's two thirds here as well, actually. Um, and I just was interested in one other thing, Saskia. Um, so when you talk about the spotters and you talk about all those people that are involved in a murder, because as we know, a murder cell can be 10, 12 people. The 
getaway drivers, etc. Do the likes, is there laws that can allow um, police go after the likes of the spotters? Can they be brought in for, you know, conspiracies or is there is there actual charges there in relation to them? Well, you can as long as you have the evidence that they were actually spotting. But it's a bit hard because, you know, it's they are uh, young guys that are hanging around on the street, talking to each other, looking around themselves a little bit. And if you ask them what they're doing there, they say, hey, I'm just hanging out. So is there a law against it? Well, there isn't. So you can't really do much about it. I mean, you can... Um, once something has gone wrong, like the murder of Peter de Vries, you suddenly realise that a couple of weeks earlier, those youngsters were hanging around uh, in the street. But then you don't know anymore where they are, who they are, and you can't do anything anymore. But um, obviously they were watching Peter and uh, trying to find out at what times he, he was arriving there, at what times he would leave uh, to give this information to the, the guy that would finally fire the shots. And finally, Saskia, I wanted to ask you, where are we at with the Marengo trial? Is it in adjournment at the moment or is it, it's it's like I try to follow it, but it's it's very complex. It starts and stops, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, it's adjourned till December and then it's going on again. But uh, there's still a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, hassle between um, the defense and uh, the the, uh, the prosecutors, uh, but we we I think we are no we're not halfway yet. I'm being too optimistic, but <laughs> we hope uh, that the, the trial will be finished by next year. But then um, we will have an appeal. Um, but I, I would be really uh, grateful if it does end next year. I'm not very hopeful about it because. So many things happen um, that we're not sure what's going to to happen in December and then after that in January or February. Uh, it's really difficult to uh, to predict. And in the meantime, Ridwan Taji remains in that Vukt prison where I presume he's been watched ever more carefully. Um, it's a situation that you'd wonder, should the Americans come in and bring him like El Chapo to Brooklyn and really look after him? They seem to know what they're doing, but um, anyway. They have a problem because they, uh, in the, the Netherlands, they closed a couple of prisons a couple of years ago, uh, which is presenting a lot of problems now because all, they try to not to put all the, ga- the gang members uh, in the same prisons so that they can talk to each other and, you know, um, talk about what they're going to say in court. Uh, we don't have enough prisons anymore to keep them separated. So that is going to be a problem. Well, Saskia Bellman, as always, thank you very much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. 
We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners. 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com.